Hello and welcome to Suburbano, a podcast where we talk to leading scholars on Latin American cities about their work, the cities they love, and how to make them better. I'm Isabel Peñaranda Curry, and I'm a PhD student at UC Berkeley's City and Regional Planning Department. If you like this episode, click subscribe, leave us a review, and please tell your friends. In this episode, returning co-host Aurora Cheverria and I talked to Nora Libertun on her article, Peripheral Growth in Latin American and Caribbean Metropolis, Gated Communities and Path Dependence. Nora was incredible to talk to because she's a practitioner, currently working in the Inter-American Development Bank, but she's also an academic that has taught at numerous universities, including Harvard's Graduate School of Design. She brings this perspective in this article about how the legacy of core periphery models within Latin American cities lays the foundation for a new kind of periphery, that of gated communities. We talk about how the legacy of the relationship between the public and private now reproduces or may potentially mitigate inequality and what policymakers can do to address these urban development patterns. Let's get into it. Hey, everybody, welcome back to a new episode of Sur Urbano. We're here with Aurora Cheverria. Aurora, what's up? Hi, Isabel. Happy to be back uh, here co-hosting an episode with you. Yes, Um, this is a shout out to all future co-hosts. It's so much fun that people want to do it twice. So, Aurora, (laughs) for those of us who haven't heard you yet, could you give us a brief presentation? Yeah, definitely. Uh, So I am Aurora, as you mentioned. I am a PhD student in urban planning at UCLA, and I study property taxes and property in Latin America. So very excited to be here and to learn more about Nora's work. Um, Yeah, thank you. Yes, and so as Aurora mentioned, we're here with Nora Libertun de Duren, who's a leading expert on sustainability, social inclusion, affordable housing in urban areas. She has experience working in multilateral development banks, local government, and academia, and currently leads the Inter-American Development Bank Research and Knowledge Agenda on Cities um, and Mainstreams Gender and Diversity Issues in Urban Projects. And I might also add, she's the only person from the Inter-American Development Bank that I've ever seen um, cite David Harvey in an article. So we just have someone with a great combination of talents. Hi, Nora. Hi, how are you? So, thank you so much for having me. Hi, Isabel. How Aurora? It's a pleasure being here. We are so happy to have you. The first question we usually ask, because the spirit of the podcast is to kind of capture the energy of sitting down with an academic to talk about cities you love. So the first question we usually ask is, what is your favorite place to get a beer or coffee or beverage um, in Buenos Aires or whatever city you like to hang out in? There is a place which is a small cafe, very close to a square, which is not famous at all, but it has kind of like the perfect Spanish grid. It has, um, you know, it has one church on one side, a school on the other side, a building which used to be a municipality or some kind of local institutional um, uh, function, a place for, for, for dealing with the residents. Uh, and then there's this small cafe uh, in the corner. And I like it there, not because it's very fancy, but it, it feels almost fixing time in, in its architecture. But at the same time, people go there with not nostalgic reasons, but, you know, for real reasons, like, uh, you know, talking about businesses or, or meeting friends or 
um, go, you know, having a coffee after school or, you know, just just using the city as a city should be used. Um, and I, I really like it just because of that. Um, so, yes, that, that's, that will be my place. I have always wanted to go to Buenos Aires and now I want to go even more from this description of this particular corner. Um, so today we're going to be discussing a chapter that you wrote in the handbook of urban studies in Latin American and Caribbean metropolis, which re you recently published and in this was recently published. And in this book, you wrote a chapter titled Peripheral Growth in Latin American and Caribbean Metropolis, Gated Communities and Spatial Path Dependence. And just to give a brief overview of the text, you argue that the emergence of gated communities in the peripheries and metropolitan areas needs to be understood through a framework of spatial path dependence. And you kind of trace the development of gated communities in the peripheries. And specifically, you mentioned that, you know, this is a housing typology that has been rapidly multiplying, specifically in Buenos Aires, where um, you focus the, the work. So kind of getting straight to it, um, how do you define and explain gated communities and specifically their presence in the periphery? Like, how does that make the, that presence unique? Yeah, let me, let me kind of start with a disclosure because you said I'm the only one who, who, you know, like quotes Harvey. And so I'm speaking on behalf of my own opinions, not on behalf of, you know, um, the Inter-American Development Bank. And, and also currently I'm teaching a class at Harvard, not on behalf of Harvard, just on behalf of my own. Uh, knowledge and, and perception of the world. So gated communities, um, there is a lot going on uh, in, in explaining why are they happening and how they are happening. But I think that um, one way to understand them is by looking both at the public and at the private sector. So it's not just about um, a, a demand for them. And, and I very often have seen people talking about how households or why households are demanding these, these kind of spaces which are enclosed and, and um, separated or segregated from the rest of the city and coming up with a number of reasons like uh, cultural affinity or, or even uh, the influence of the American kind of uh, urban model or suburban model, uh, issues of crime and fear, distrust on the government. That, that's also... Uh, as much as that's part of the story, I think that there is another story to be told, which is what's happening with the public provision of services that is leading uh, this household to choose these kind of, of places. And I mean, you study you study uh, tax uh, tax properties and, and fiscal issues in, in Latin America, and I think that this is such an interesting entry point because it has to do with land and it has to do with ownership of land. And um, that's kind of like the essence of urban planning. At the end of the day, it's about who owns the land and how can you rule and regulate and implement those regulations on the land. So I think that gated communities are, in a way, um, a physical expression of the problems of the state in terms of ruling and providing services for uh, households. Nora, before we go further, for someone who, for whatever reason, is interested in Latin American cities but hasn't seen these gated communities, like, what what do they look like? What are they like? Or how do you define them? It depends on the scale. 
how would they look like? I mean, if you look at the houses, they look as single family ha- homes that you could see almost in any suburb in an American city, perhaps even with a much more modern architecture in a way. In, in, it's, it's kind of uh, funny that in terms of architectural design, they could be quite avant-garde, uh, but in terms of urban planning, they're super not um, updated, let's say. They're kind of like very traditional. I have hardly seen any of these uh, gated communities uh, being innovative in terms of the use of, you know, um, circular economy or, 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 or green devices or, 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 or greenery even. So it's funny, you know, like architectural scale could be, um, you know, innovative, urban planning, very traditional. But what you will see is that once the neighborhood um, gets completed in a way, once you, you step out, and do this this view from the sky, you would see that they are gated. And that means that they have a fence, a real fence, that could be even a wall that is guarded, and there are specific entry points. So no one could access, in theory, no one could access without being a subject to some kind of, uh, I don't know how to say it, it's like entering an airport. You know, you have to be scanned, or you have, there's, there's a very strong... A device for security before entering these communities. And, and I think that that's kind of like their definition, like they are guarded, privately guarded spaces. They also have, and, and, and that would be the number one thing that I would highlight. They also have some uh, arrangement in terms of the provision of services, like for example, typical services that are provided by the municipality, like cleaning and managing uh, waste or, or managing public services are all done privately and they have privately management and have been designed privately. But the most striking feature is the the fence and how they are segregated from the rest of the landscape. And if you want me to go farther, the contrast that that creates is very, very uh, notorious because you would have, on one hand, you would have these gated communities, which may be having a you know, like a high maintenance level and and big houses, well-maintained houses. And on the other side, you might have a slum or you might have um, not a slum, but a very low-income neighborhood which might not have access to sanitation. So the contrast is amazing. And, and, it's, and it's something that explains why these neighborhoods are gated. Doesn't justify them, but explains that from the developer side, I mean, from the, from the private developer, that's the only way that he could market these houses to this household is by gating them. When I first saw the title of your article and the mention of peripheral growth, I thought of the kind of more traditional vision of Latin American um, city peripheries. And so I thought that the lens of gated communities is a really interesting way to think of peripheral urban development. So just to step back a bit, what led you to to this topic? Like, what got you interested in gated communities as a way of exploring the peripheries of Latin American cities? So this will be funny for you, but once I read an article about um, a person who was an expert on finding paintings that were forged, meaning that kind of like fake copies, and the the way that this person. Uh, was good at his at his job was by looking at the periphery of the image, things that most people would overlook, like you know the shape of a nail or you know a base that is you know on one corner in the back. 
because if you would look at the center, if you would look at the eyes of the main character, at you know, like the, the, the main features of the face, that would be the, the place where you would put most attention. And someone who wants to, you know, like to pretend that this is the original uh, painter would do so. So he started looking at all these details that were typically overlooked and were done in a, you know, without putting much care. And I thought that that, that was interesting also for the cities, uh, how, how the peripheries and, and the things that are happening without a clear plan are much more revealing, perhaps, of, of what is happening. Uh, and, and it occurred to me that gated communities were a very clear expression of what was not working in the city, not just what was working for these households. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's so much about the urban services that are not being provided by the state that then people can find in these very enclosed and privatized spaces. But it also kind of stood out to me that you've written about gated communities before. It's a topic that you have kind of developed a lot throughout the years. And I'm curious if your vision of this particular type of housing typology has evolved and kind of developed from when you first started looking at it um, towards, you know, more recently, this last chapter you wrote? Yes, for sure I did. And there are two issues that are kind of relevant in my mind now that I haven't explored at the very beginning. One is the job market, and the other one is the issue of uh, resilience and climate change. In terms of the job market, I was always kind of like having this idea of gated communities are providing a private answer for the lack of response from the public sector in providing certain services. But then I started realizing that they were also providing a job market response, not a good one, perhaps not a sustainable one, but it kind of explained why local communities were not more vocal in terms of complaining about this gated community. Because in as much as we have seen them as, okay, this is an enclave, which is very segregated and it's uh, not doing much for their periphery, for many people living in areas nearby, they are seen as a source of employment. And instead of having to commute one hour to downtown, you are now commuting 20 minutes to the fancy neighborhood. So, I mean, of course, you know, the kind of jobs that you will get there perhaps are not the ones that are going to be most conducive for, you know, prosperity, but they are not different than the ones that they were getting downtown. So it was interesting for me to see that um, not all people who were living next to these gated communities were seeing them as evil. Actually, they were seeing as, oh, you know, there's a new source of employment. Like you will see there's a new factory. It, it, so, so understanding how complex uh, was that relationship was something that I think explains why so many municipal officers are so happy to have them not just because they will bring uh, some kind of fiscal payment, you know, but also because they could claim that they have brought jobs to their locality. It's kind of like a complex interaction. You're not seeing what you want to see, but perhaps for the short term, for some people, it's an improvement. And then the other thing that, of course, you know, now it's, it's very present is the whole issue of uh, sustainability and, and resilience and climate change. But I also want to say uh, um, something about pollution. We have like the issue of pollution, environmental pollution, is very, very important. And it's unclear to me to which extent these gated communities are affecting that or, or, or becoming good citizens in terms of that. And I think that that would be the opportunity to reconnect the city again, 
because these gated communities, as much as they would like, they cannot extract themselves from the reality of the environment. That's something that you can simply not do. So the issue that areas nearby are highly polluted or the issue of vulnerability to whatever, disasters like, like hurricanes or, or maybe you know, some kind of a problem with extra heat and how that could affect the health of the people who live nearby, uh, it's going to affect them. So perhaps, you know, one good expectation would be that these topics, which are not, um, which cannot be solved at the scale of these gated communities, open up opportunities for having an understanding of how the city is interconnected and being more generous with your surroundings. And thinking about, I mean, it also brings up new dynamics within the periphery, as you mentioned, with this labor market, um, which I think is really interesting. And something you mentioned in the text, too, is how these geographies of uneven development in the region have led to this kind of development in the peripheries. Um, and also you mentioned a few dynamics that have led to this, like the lower land values, um, labor dynamics, um, you mentioned as well, uh, kind of fiscal incentives of smaller municipal jurisdictions. So kind of looking at the set of dynamics that led to this development um, in the peripheries. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this and kind of how to disentangle these trends that you identify. No, I mean, all that you mentioned, it, it's, it's there. Um, but I think that it also has to do with the historical change in the way that uh, countries were planning their territory. For various reasons, uh, many countries moved from national planning. Uh, and, and some of the reasons were very valid because it, it does require this top-down approach and perhaps lack of participation. And also it requires a lot of funding and it requires long-term understanding of the territory. So that was something that was happening maybe, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago. And for a long time now, uh, we have not seen that. We have not seen countries thinking how to plan the territory at the regional scale. Uh, as a consequence of that, the provision of infrastructure in many places is incomplete and it's never made a is not make a priority. So you have many areas that are close to urban areas that do not have basic infrastructure. And, and that's crazy, but it's what's happening. There are some services, just for you to have this in mind, like sanitation, uh, which maybe half of the population or maybe even more than half of the population in Latin America and the Caribbean uh, cities do not have access to, which is crazy. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a technology that has been invented more than, more than a century ago. And it's very well proven that it's necessary and it leads to healthy environments and lives and everything. I mean... And yet, it's still not available. There are more people with cell phones than with toilets. So, so what that makes is like there is a ton of land that was left to be developed, let's say, by the municipal governments. Municipal governments are super undercapable of doing this because they are super under, underfunded. Uh, they, they are, I mean, above and beyond their political ability to coordinate the territory, above and beyond their normative um, ability to do so, if they are enabled or not. They do not have the funding. 
So these kind of things imply that the private sector becomes really, really powerful and becomes a much more important player. So as a consequence, you have more gated communities because they are a private response. But of course, you know, a private response cannot factor 30 years, 50 years, you know, of, of investment until they get some something back. And also they cannot take care of the whole municipality. So you have these developments that they have to be gated because if you don't have anything, you know, in terms of affluence in the area, there is no way that you're going to sell these houses to an affluent household. So, so in a way, the poverty that exists in these areas, it's, it's kind of like making it necessary to brand these places like, as gated. Uh, it's, it's almost like a, like a strategy for developers to do so. And that's unfortunate. That's very unfortunate. Because what we build today is going to be uh, there for a long, long time. And the cost of tearing down these walls, it's, it's, it's not just the walls. It's like, how do you create a continuous city once you have this infrastructure built in this particular shape? I think that just connects really neatly with the overall framework of your article, which is um, spatial path dependence, which is a concept that you adapt from Douglas North's, North's ideas on economic history. So could you kind of explain a little bit what spatial path dependence is? And then we'll get into how you apply it. So basically, as you said, well, Douglas North has this very strong idea. Uh, he was an economist who was studying the economy from the historical perspective, how, how you develop. And he, he made this strong point in terms of the role of institutions and how institutions do carry certain practices and certain norms through time. Uh, and, and basically what it implies is that changing path is very expensive. Um, and, and you can intuitively connect to this idea that once you start doing something in some way, even if, if you find out that there's a different, better way to do something, changing implies a cost that is very hard to, to implement. Even more when there is some status quo in your uh, existing behavior, meaning that some people are benefiting from continuing in this particular way. So not only is it difficult to change, but also there are forces that are opposed uh, to that change. Um, and I was, and, and he doesn't focus on the spatial at all, but he focuses on institutions. But I was thinking that the space that also carries that uh, condition in which changing the grid of development, changing infrastructures is so, so expensive and is so difficult to do. Uh, so basically... Whatever we build uh, is going to carry into the future uh, in terms of how it's going to make some decisions more costly than others. Uh, so you never start blank. You start from somewhere. Um, and, and that was the idea that I wanted to emphasize, that there is also the path that we have taken in terms of the use of the territory is going to create a weight on the future. Um, and that I think that as planners, we should be so aware of that. Uh, it's not just what we do today, but how our actions would open up or close opportunities for the future. And I think that to apply that to your argument, could you talk a little bit about how the conditions of peripheralization in which we have this notion of the traditional Latin American periphery, as we were saying, of informal settlements, of, of places with low service provision, with municipalities with low fiscal capacity. Could you talk about how 
that kind of peripheralization directly connects to this new kind of gated community peripheralization. When you have these uh, areas, and, and something to bear in mind is that this is a very fluid notion, uh, what is central and what is peripheral. By that, I mean that the footprint keeps on changing. So what had been peripheral 50 years ago might now be central. Uh, but what I want to say is that uh, the periphery of the city, uh, maybe particularly in Buenos Aires, maybe 67 years ago, um, was left without infrastructure. I mean, there was this project in which everything was going to have infrastructure. Like, and by infrastructure, I mean like bases, basic water, sanitation, electricity. It did cover the city itself and the first, um, what we call the first ring, so the area that surrounded it. But then uh, the project stopped. Uh, also, at the same time, you start having more pressures, uh, and that's happening every city in the world. The cost of land is going up, you know, more than any other good, I would say, or more than the majority of the other goods in the last 50 years. And it will keep on going up just because of demographics. And, and by that, you have more people and you have um, households for that, which for a number of reasons are smaller. So the demand for housing is also going up and it's going up faster than even population growth. So, so land become something that is very expensive, land with services. Um, so you have this periphery that is going to be in need of, of services, that there is a need for, for housing. And then if you do that in the informal way, you, what you will have is informal settlements, which, which is what we are seeing. And of course, someone who's living in an informal settlement um, is doing that because of the opportunities of the job market, not because of the housing opportunities. I mean, very often someone who lives in an informal settlement left a house that was in a better condition than the one that he's moving to. And that's because the access to um, jobs, the access to transportation to those jobs. So, so then you have this first thing that you have a city that is very expensive. You have a periphery that has slums or, or, or very low income households living in, in very um, underserved areas. And then you have uh, a demand for housing that, that needs to be addressed, that does have some income, but cannot afford perhaps to live in the center of the city. So that is where the private sector decides, okay, we'll, do, we'll take advantage of this land that is in the periphery, um, because also it could be bought. It would be very hard to buy land, like that amount of land in areas that are already consolidated. Um, there was also, interestingly, there was also an, an improvement in terms of uh, highway transportation, like, like um, the ability to commute, you know, so, so that's also part of the story. But once you have that, uh, the way that the private sector develops these neighborhoods uh, is by making them all gated, and private. And the reason for that is the surroundings were uh, very low, low income. And if you want to attract the people who are living or who wanted to live in downtown areas, you have to make a conceptual disconnection from the surroundings of the periphery uh, where you're building. I mean, it's almost like, how are you going to convince anyone to move to these areas, which were known as areas for uh, poor households 
to move there if you don't disconnect them and if you don't create these fantasy landscapes and if you don't have big walls with guards. It's it's almost a demand, but the demand is because of what had not happened before in these places. And following here the theme of privatization, which is kind of what this happened, um, what gated communities highlight, a salient idea that stood out to me in your piece is this relationship between the citizen and the state. And you mentioned that in the urban, the urban periphery became a place where those that do not receive services from the state reside side by side. And here you're kind of referring to kind of more informal households and also these kind of middle class um, residents that live in these gated communities. And kind of wanting to look deeper into this, I'm very curious of how you think this affects that relationship, that exchange relationship between the state and the citizen and kind of the fiscal contract, but also, um, and just like in this theme of path dependence, how this kind of just like, is not just a momentary thing, but has implications for like the future of this relationship between state and state and citizens. Yes. So, so I think that the first thing that this shows is a lack of trust in that relationship. The fact that you decide to go all private means that you don't trust the kind of services that you are getting or think that you will never get it. Uh, Because, you know, it should be said that informal neighborhoods are also private in the way that they receive their services. They happen with a different mechanism. They are private and informal or they are private and formal, but they are private. So I think that that goes to both types of organization. To which extent that could be improved in the future, I think, you know, and I want to be optimistic here, I think that the kind of big challenges that we are facing with the environment are an opportunity for reconstructing that relationship. So uh, there are these kind of problems like pollution. You know, I'm not even talking about climate disasters, pollution, that it's affecting things like uh, water basins or the quality of the air in very, very noticeable ways that demand coordination at the state level. And, And I think that even, even if they cannot be solved only by the state, which definitely cannot be solved without private participation or without civic participation, um, it gives an opportunity for being um, the covenant or being the one who coordinates all these interactions. So I think that's, that's something that's relevant. And also something to highlight here is how those issues are pushing for the metropolitan coordination. Um, we talk about the city and we talk about the municipality, but but the really relevant dimension that has to be explored is, is the metropolis. And by that, I mean the, all the municipalities that are connected, uh, and yet they do not have a clear mechanism for governance. Uh, and, and that's really relevant for dealing with these big topics. And, and perhaps, you know, um, something as disruptive as, as a change in the environment might be what is required to change the path for the good way. I think a follow-up question that I've been curious about is if you have a reading on the impact that this has on inequality, obviously the very notion of the gate is premised on an existing inequality, but you also found these interesting patterns of like labor markets that are created around these gated communities. So do you have any idea of whether this is just like an absolute reinforcement of inequality or if there's some kind of like unexpected dynamics there. Yeah, thanks for for highlighting that. 
I think that by all means, this is an expression of inequality and is, and is fixing inequality in the space. Uh, there's no question about that. But having said that, I think that it also opens up opportunities in which way one is the labor market. Of course, you know, that could not be the future for the generations, but it is an opening. Uh, the other one is that uh, it might create um, some investment of the gated communities on these areas uh, just because they are next to them. So, so they might you know, be more inclined to contribute to the local school uh, just because they see you know, that they, this is there. I mean, there's something about humanity that, that being next to someone uh, it might entice you to do something. So, so that is an opportunity. I mean, of course, it's not, it's not enough and it shouldn't be depending on good feelings uh, because it's not about good feelings. There is, a, there is the right of people, you know, like uh, that is not being respected if they don't get good schools, good environment um, uh, and, and opportunities. But having said that, uh, I do believe that the proximity might uh, might create uh, new new beginnings, and also the other thing that would be interesting to see is that uh, once what because you know at the beginning many many of these households would keep their address their home address their voting address in their in the city in the um, in the downtown, uh, but now most of them do not. So they vote in these municipalities. So it will be interesting to, to learn to which extent that is also going to have an impact on um, the political management and, and the, the kind of mayor that they choose. I mean, and that could go either way. Like you could think okay, they're going to vote for someone who is going to strengthen these divisions more, like making it um, more clear that these are two worlds that do not have anything to do one with the other, or maybe the opposite. Maybe, you know, they say, um, in order to increase uh, the security or the peace or the humanity of this place, we need someone who invests more in these areas. And I guess they vote in these municipalities, but they also pay taxes in these municipalities. Has that had any impact, of, just out of curiosity, in like improving the infrastructure services kind of as a whole? On one hand, what I've seen is that uh, sometimes they are like a captive um they're a captive population. Like, you know, the mayor would know that these people could pay more and maybe change change the fiscal fiscal policies just to charge them more. Um, it's unclear if, if, if those those extra funds are doing you know something better for the rest of the municipality, but that have happened. At the same time, something that also have happened is that by having this population who is more affluent in these areas, um, there also have been new businesses coming to these areas, like uh, um, new restaurants and shopping malls and, and movies and theaters. So, so maybe you know that had also been a source for for fiscal for new fiscal resources for these areas. 
And um, I guess it's another thing that I really found interesting was this relationship between the core and peripheral municipalities that, as you say, are very fluid because the periphery is always moving and kind of liminal in this way. But um, I think something that I've been thinking a lot about in my own work, uh, which I've been thinking about the public finance and urban, ser urban service provision characteristics and differences between the urban and um, or metropolitan core municipalities and metropolitan peripheral municipalities. Um, and just kind of thinking about the differences between these, but also I think the challenges in supporting healthy finances and adequate public service provision in peripheral municipalities, while also not promoting kind of a more horizontal urban expansion. Um, so wanting to like maintain that accessibility to the center and um, kind of have an, an urban growth that is geared towards that a more compact city at the end of the day. And I'm wondering if you've kind of faced these challenges and how we think about the peripheries um, with this kind of model of the city of wanting it to be more center focused. The issue of density, it's there. Uh, although there is a sweet point, like I, once I publish a paper on the sweet point, you know, in terms of density, like uh, to which extent being more dense is always more efficient. But I mean, of course, you can consider that from a number of perspectives, but this was considered from the fiscal perspective, which is, uh, which is the ideal uh, density of people in terms of fiscal expenditure. And we find it to be like between 7,000 and 9,000 per square kilometer. I mean, doesn't matter, but the idea is that that's only one variable because there could be so many other variables. Like, for example, um, in terms of the use of uh, energy and, and commuting and even social issues and social services. Uh, but, but having said that, I wanted to, to step back a little bit and highlight something that sometimes is overlooked when we look at cities in Latin America, which is their high level of primacy which is the following. Uh, when you look at the structure of um, cities in the United States, uh, you have many, many cities. Uh, they all have services. I know it sounds obvious, but it has to be highlighted. They all have services. And a city like New York City uh, might amount to 6% of the population. Uh, so even, you know, like one of the largest cities, uh, it's still only 6% of the population, or, or let's say less than 10%. When you look at cities in Latin America, they, are, they have a super high level of primacy, which means that uh, one city might account for 30, 40% of the population of the country. Um, that's the case of Argentina, the case of Uruguay, the case of uh, Chile, perhaps Colombia and, and Mexico and Brazil are not as, as you know, at, concentrated in terms of the distribution of their urban population, but they're also much more um, concentrated than cities in the population. It's concentrated in very few places. Uh, and you compare that to the European Union or you compare that with the US. And that means, you know, that the periphery is something else. The value that that periphery has is something else. Uh, and that means that um, the opportunities for not being in that city because you don't like the city for some reason, like, you know, the famous boat with their feet, like, well, but where would I go? You know, like there are like maybe two or three cities that have that level of service or sometimes not even that. 
uh, is very limited. And then um, the issues of exclusionary inclusion are very hard to manage because it's not that there are so many urban models that someone could opt to go if you don't like the way the city works. So when you talk about the periphery of Buenos Aires, it's like if you don't find your place in the in the city of Buenos Aires, you can go to, there are two or three more cities that you can go, but that's it. Um, so in terms of opportunities for job mark, for, for jobs, in terms of, of consumption of resources, the, the peripheries of these places are very, very relevant because also in terms of the distribution of the population, maybe you have 20% of the population living in the, the city proper and the rest is all the periphery. Uh, so, so I think that it has to be uh, present in this conversation, you know, like also the, the, the territorial dimension of these things and how the lack of infrastructure um, it's really an imposition on, on how the population could develop because it's not easy to find another place that will provide that or that will provide the same level of opportunities. Um, so that, you know, like if you don't like a city in, in the United States, you might fall, go to another city and that would not imply that you don't have sanitation. And I think we could also add, although to a lesser degree, and I think this is changing, but a lot of Latin American cities have been very kind of monocentric or have few centers. And so the periphery is kind of stable, more stable than it would be if there were multiple centers within cities, which kind of reinforces this. And I think that is one of, um, to enter into the next question about COVID, this like question of the 15-minute city. I know Bogota right now is trying to adopt that in its new um, land use plan of like how to multiply centralities, which your gated communities might, you don't know, spark that, but or maybe not. Anyway, you do dedicate a part of your your article to COVID, and it's interesting um, how you mentioned the ways that the pandemic influenced trends and potentially uh, increased gated communities in the periphery. So, could you talk a little bit about that argument um, and the dynamics that you observed and the factors that influenced it? So, let me say something about the the fifteen minute city. I think it's a great idea, but I wouldn't like that for Latin American cities. I think that uh, Latin, if you uh, making someone stay within 15 minutes uh, in a Latin American city might be really punishment. Uh, I mean, if you are in a nice part of the city, that's okay. And it's already happening, actually. Uh, but if you are in one part of the city that is peripheral, limiting your your movements to that area might be really undermining your choices for finding good everything. I mean, not, not just, you know, good jobs, but also good uh, entertainment, cultural activities, access, access to museums and anything, you know. So, so the notion of that, the 15-minute city, I think that it is, it is good in as much as you have um, the infrastructure that is of equal level everywhere. Uh, so, so that that to be said, um, and the reason why I talk about COVID at, at that moment, you know, because it was a moment in which we had all these ideas, was I was wondering to which extent telework was going to be a, a permanent, and and the notion that if you if you can work from home, then uh, gated communities are even more attractive because. Um, you do not have to deal with the commuting, which is one of the things that is undermining. Uh, it, the, one of the things that is limiting the growth of the communities is, is the is the 
commuting toll, how, how onerous it is for people to commute to the center. So if you wouldn't have that, I was uh, imagining that in the same way that here in the United States, many, many peripheral towns, let's say, grew in terms of their prices because of the ability to, to telework, um, I thought that gated communities would do so uh, in, in uh, Latin American cities. But um, it's a speculation. I think it's a really interesting conversation. And I think it's interesting in response to your article and your identification of path dependence, because we have this kind of self reinforcing cycle where our path dependence in Latin American cities lead to like cultural activities and um, even like access to health facilities and such concentrated in specific places, which undermines the very ability to have something like a 15 minute city. And there was an economist in Columbia, Lachlan Curry, who even in the 70s proposed this idea of like cities within cities. And Bogota actually got developed this thing called Ciudad Salitre, which was supposed to be just that. And I think it was an interesting project, but was ultimately undermined in part because of land values and in part because of the path dependencies that made the growth of Ciudad Salitre difficult to control. And ultimately, it became a gated community. And so I think there's a lot of interesting connections between this attempt to decentralize um, Latin American cities and some of the challenges that are present in what you're observing right now in the gated communities you study. And I think, you know, the 15-minute city, it's a very attractive concept. Uh, we should take what is good about that, which is the idea that you could connect to your place, uh, which is something to be valued, you know, that you have some emotional connection to your place and that you have um, the ability to walk, the ability to go to a park, you know, that's that's a value and it has to do with, also it even has to do with gender equality, you know, to have access to a park for kids. Uh, so so that, that's something to be celebrated. But the whole idea that planning can be solved at that scale, uh, it's, you know, I think I want to go back to the beginning of our conversation in which I, I highlight this notion that there's this movement out of planning uh, the territory at the regional scale and moving on to the neighborhood scale, which of course it has a value, but it cannot replace and this, this, all these other levels of thinking and all these other levels of uh, organizing the territory. So I think, you know, again, you know, like the, the fact that when we talk about urban planning, the main thing is the 15-minute city, it's okay, but we also need to think larger than that. Just to finish up here, I think one of the really exciting aspects of getting to talk to you and we wanted to have this conversation with you is because you have such a unique perspective that kind of blends in the academic, but also the practitioner and just because you're kind of interacting with these two worlds at once. Um, so I think we're kind of very curious about how your, how your time in the Inter-American Development Bank has influenced your research and the way you think about these issues. Um, particularly the challenges of urban development, but also reconciling housing production and the actual development of these metropolitan areas. So just from this very unique perspective that you have, if you can kind of give us some insight into this. Yeah, and again, you know, the disclosures, I answering on behalf of my own uh, view of the world and, and not the institution, uh, not the Inter-American Development Bank. But for me, it had really uh, made me aware of the role of institutions much more than before. 
Um, and it had made me aware of the relevance of having a good connection between the national and the subnational levels of government. And it seems that we have this imbalance in which we are asking so much from, from municipalities. We're asking so much from cities which don't even have an institutional um, mirror for, for our ask. Uh, so, so we have all these expectations, but the reality is that they hardly have the capabilities to do so. Financial capabilities, technical capabilities, uh, they, the ability to coordinate. In many, many countries, what we have seen is the the amazingly uh, weakness of municipal governments. Uh, so we have this contradiction in which we have um, countries which are really highly urbanized, in which the population concentrates in an area that is very, very small. Uh, and yet the ability of the governments, the local governments to implement something is so limited. Uh, so it made me aware of the importance of this connection between the national and the subnational. And the other thing is that uh, this is something about our our view of the world, like how little is the spatial dimension present in the conversations of development um, and how much more do we have to push for that? Um, there is some clarity in terms of the um, time, the, the, the time frame, you know, the issue that, okay, some things do take time. And there is, of course, this clear understanding of, Okay, poverty and income and and these things that you can measure, but space, which is such a determinant of many of the outcomes that we want to see, uh, it's it's very often not part of the conversation. And I think because we tend to have these conversations with people who come from politics or people who come from the the field of economics, uh, but I think that they, there is so much more needed in terms of the urban planning and the territorial planning and the spatial development. Uh, so, so that's also an important um, awareness that I got, you know, by working in this institution. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you say that because this has actually been a recurring theme through several of our podcasts, including most recently with Maria Mercedes Maldonado, who was Secretary of Planning of Bogota. Um, and we were talking about Gustavo Petro's current like new presidency and the absence of cities again on the national agenda. And so I think your point about, yes, decentralization was a very important moment in Latin America and we thought it would be, or and it, to a degree it was, this great democratizing force, but like how do we connect that to national policies and how do we think of the role of the nation in urban development and urban planning? And I think that ans that question right now is like, very much in the air. So it's it's interesting to hear you say it. Nora, thank you so much. This was a, a super interesting conversation and it was great to, to be able to talk to you. And Aurora, thank you so much for facilitating. No, thank you both. Thank you so much, Nora, for being here with us today. Thank you, Aurora. Thank you, Isabel. It was, it was my pleasure. And, and thank you so much for doing this series. It's so valuable for, for all of us. Thank you. Sur Urbano is a product of Latin American Cities Working Group, based in UC Berkeley. To find out more about us, check out the show notes, where we also link the articles we discuss. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you want to be a co-host, you can reach us at latam underscore cities on Twitter, or write to me at ipenarandac um, 
on Instagram or Twitter.